stronger and the economic impact is much more severe. So I don't say for any sense that we're back in a bull market, apart from the technical uh, definition of it. Toby, thanks very much indeed. Have a great weekend. That's Toby Lawson, Head of Global Markets at Societe Generale in Australia. You're listening to Money Talk on RTHK Radio 3. We're seeing this very big rally at the moment in US stock index futures on the back of those reports that uh, Gilead Sciences' remdesivir drug, which is being run around the world on COVID-19 patients, is showing uh, rapid progress in combating patient symptoms. As a result of that, uh, S&P 500 index futures are up about two and three quarter percent. Dow futures are up close to 800 points. And as you can imagine, that's having a big impact on Asian stock markets. In Australia, the SX200 is up 2%. The Nikkei 225 in Japan is up over 2%. The Cosby in South Korea uh, is up 2.7%. Looks like the Hang Seng, uh, that's going to add on about 1 and 3 quarter percent. That's over 400 points in uh, an hour or so's time. In the commodities markets, Brent crude oil trading at $28.81 a barrel. Gold is at uh, $1,729 an ounce. And the US dollar is at 107.8 against the Japanese yen. That's it from me this week. Do have a great weekend. Back chat with Hugh Chiverton and Danny Gittings coming up after the news. The weather forecast, mainly fine. Hot during the day, maximum temperature of 28 degrees. And going to be mainly fine in the next couple of days. Hot during the day as well. It's 23 degrees right now, 86% relative humidity. 8.31 and a half. Here's Samantha Butler with the Half Hour News. President Trump has set out his plans for lifting coronavirus restrictions across America. At a White House news conference, he said governors would be allowed to choose how to meet their state's individual needs. Governors will be empowered to tailor an approach that meets the diverse circumstances of their own state's If they need to remain closed, we will allow them to do that. And if they believe it is time to reopen, we will provide them the freedom and guidance to accomplish that task. He said the process would be carried out in three phases, which would be reached sooner in some states than others. New figures show more than 5 million people in the United States made new claims for unemployment benefits last week. The figure is only slightly lower than in the previous two weeks and underlines the massive damage being done to the U.S. economy by the coronavirus. Here's the BBC's Nick Bryant. More than 22 million Americans have filed for unemployment benefits over the past month. A staggering and unprecedented figure. It's wiped out all of the jobs growth since the Great Recession more than a decade ago. The jobless figures come off the back of the steepest drop in retail sales since records began 30 years ago. Industrial production has seen its sharpest fall since the end of World War II. As one economist put it, this is the deepest, fastest, most broad-based recession America has ever seen. Facebook and its partners have submitted revised plans for the proposed Libra digital currency to Swiss regulators. Here's the BBC's Danny Eberhard. Libra's backers tout what they say are the benefits of having a worldwide digital payment system, one more widely used and regulated than existing cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin. They say it could provide cheap, simple payment services for large numbers of people who can't access traditional banking systems. But regulators and central banks are wary. They fear it could undermine national currencies and be open to abuses such as money laundering and terrorist financing. The Libra Association says it's tightened the regulatory framework. It's also proposing issuing digital coins linked to specific national currencies like the dollar and euro, not just a multi-currency digital coin. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning and welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton, your co-host this Friday morning. Danny Gittings. Danny, good morning to you. Good morning. Today is judicial independence at risk in Hong Kong. A Reuters report on Tuesday quoted some senior judges as saying the independence of Hong Kong's judicial system is under assault from the Chinese Communist Party, posing the gravest threat to the rule of law in the SAR since the handover. The legal subsector of the election committee has also issued a joint statement urging Beijing to respect judicial independence. Do agree there is a problem. The Chief Justice says he has not at any time encountered any form of interference by the mainland authorities on judicial independence. Do you trust our legal system? How real do you think the threat is? And from 9 to 9.15, how safe is the video conferencing tool Zoom? If you've got any 
thoughts, questions, or comments, you can uh, comment on our Facebook page, Bank Chat and RTHK Radio 3. You can call us on 233-88266 or you can email us, bankchat at rthk.hk, and we'll read out your messages, although we may have to um, edit uh, for length. Uh, for example, uh, a comment by, well, let's maybe start with some response from uh, yesterday's discussion. Uh, when we were talking about the uh, WHO and the uh, success and failure of the WHO and the decision by uh, Donald Trump to suspend uh, support, uh, Mike uh, is back. And Mike says, on the subject of the WHO spokespersons, the average spokesperson's financial compensation that speak for international organisations is between 80000 to 150000 US dollars a year. I'm curious to know about your yesterday's guests. Conflict of interest with regards to any honest, unbiased opinions. Were the RTHK guests paid WHO spokespersons and did they declare as such? Were they speaking on their own behalf or was that something that I missed? Uh, as far as I know, Mike, they were neither of them uh, spokespersons uh, for the WHO, paid employees uh, in that sense. Uh, they were honorary advisors, as I understand it. Uh, that was uh, Judith Mackay and uh, a health official from the uh, Thai government, or formerly of the Thai government. Um, uh, they were not uh, WHO uh, employees. Interesting where you get that figure from, for the average spokesperson's financial compensation for international organisations. Your source is there. And uh, Leon says, Dear Backchat, I read that the sole new COVID case yesterday was a student returning from the UK who showed no symptoms during her mandatory 14-day quarantine, but fell sick thereafter. As I mentioned in my email earlier this week, I've heard of similar cases in the past couple of weeks. This underlines the need for the government to immediately implement the following procedure. At the culmination of the 14-day quarantine, all individuals should have to take a COVID-19 test paid for by the government before they are allowed to leave home. That comes uh, from uh, Leon. Uh, uh, Magnus uh, and uh, comments on our Facebook page are furthermore about uh, COVID-19. Maybe we'll, we'll, uh, we'll get to those a little bit later. We'll be kind of returning to the topic when we talk about uh, Zoom at about uh, 9.15. So we'll, we'll hold them back maybe till then. Danny. Um, and joining us for our main segment of discussion on judicial independence, uh, we have two prominent legal academics, uh, Professor Johannes Chan, the chair professor of law and the former dean of the Faculty of Law at the University of Hong Kong, and Carol Peterson. Carol Peterson is a former director of the Center for Comparative and Public Law at the University of Hong Kong. She's now professor at the School of Law at the University of Manoa in Hawaii. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Morning. Uh, Professor Good Professor morning. Chan, uh, let's, let's, go to, let's go to you first. Um, I mean, the, obviously, the, this Reuters report is very much in the news this week and su suggesting that um, uh, the outgoing Chief Justice, uh, Jeffrey Ma, refers to him actually feeling the strain from the job and getting weary of the pressure he comes under from, from mainland officials. I mean, what, is your, what is your own impression about the accuracy or otherwise of that report? Um, well, um, it's a heavy job. Uh, if anyone is wary as the top job of that kind, I won't be surprised. Uh, but and I won't be expecting anything less from Jeffrey. Uh, um, and his statement, I think, sum up very well uh, at least the position of the judiciary. Um, I, I have no no doubt about the confidence of our judiciary uh, that they are independent. Uh, but the question is uh, whether you are independent uh, and be able to resist to any interference is one thing. Whether there are interference could be another thing. Uh, and the sentiment expressed by the three senior judge in the Reuters report, I think, even if it is not prevalent, it is fairly common among the judiciary and among the legal professions. And people interpret events, people interpret what has been the move of central government and the concern uh, and the worry that they are, they are taking steps to step up the interference uh, is quite prevalent among the legal profession. Um, and we, we just need to look at, uh, I think the old case is the most damaging one, uh, when uh, that was about a couple of years ago when they tried to de uh the two legislators. And when the parties have made their submissions, the court is reserved for judgment. Uh, and then the NPCSC has to rush through an interpretation, uh, complete it on a Sunday night uh, and publish it on Monday uh, so as to make sure uh, that the court knows what their views are. Uh, and most people perceive that the only purpose of that interpretation is basically to tell our court what they should do. Now, eventually, whether the court pay heed to that is another thing, but the attempt is so obvious and blatant. 
Uh, and I think this is the kind of very uh, and independence of the judiciary is not just whether the judges are independent. There's also a perception, a public confidence there. If time and again this happens, people start to worry. Uh, and what if our judge make a decision that is not politically correct? And we have seen in the uh, the, um, the anti mask case, as soon as the court late, uh hand down the judgment, they criticize not only the judgment, they criticize the judge as well. Uh, and then later, if the court of appeal say they reverse the judgment, people start to worry: is this really what the court thinks, or is it a result of pressure? Now, once people start to to query that, the, the public perception of independence is at risk. Uh, and it could filter to other things as well. And I've heard people uh, who are eminently qualified for judicial positions, but they said, oh, if that is what is expected, if that will be continuing interference from the judiciary, why should I join the judiciary then? Oh, okay, I mean, I mean all right, Professor Chan, I mean, you talk about the public, uh, the, the public impression, and public impression may, might be that judges should be free to do what they like, and mm-hmm. uh, and you complain about the uh, that, that judgment, that ruling, uh, telling the giving the impression of telling the court what to do, but that's exactly what the MPC Standing Committee does do. They, one way or another, they tell the court what to do, and that's that's what they have the right to do. That that's what that's <laughs> what that's the setup of the basic law. Uh, I don't think that the basic law gives them the right to tell the court what to do, and that highlights the difference between the two systems. And that is what happened in, in China. Uh, there could be interference in the most direct form. Uh, they just pick up the phone and tell the judge what to do. Or it could be putting pressure on the judiciary through official organization. Uh, if you really respect an independent judiciary, you let the judiciary to do the job. Uh, you don't tell them what, what to do. Otherwise, you might as well do the job yourself then. And this is not the system of Hong Kong. And indeed, right from the very beginning, when we are drafting the basic law, this is one of the singular most important concerns, is we need to keep the independence of the judiciary. And if you look at the two systems now, that is probably the only difference between Hong Kong system and the mainland system. And the whole reason why we want an independent judiciary, which means there's no interference from the government, uh, that, that in a way highlights the, the value of the two systems. Otherwise, we become just another mainland system. Uh, and that underlines and runs through the entire basic law. Now, in an article you wrote last year, a shrinking space, dynamic relationship between the judiciary in a liberal society of Hong Kong and a socialist Leninist sovereign state, you already referred to the uh, court losing its adventurous spirit and becoming more, or the courts generally becoming more timid. You, ref- you referred to the disqualification case you mentioned just now and saying how the Court of Final Appeal failed even to hear that case and also to the um, the co-location case. So you're critical of the, uh, the judgment by the court there. It's a, a, it's a suggestion that the court is already um, actually responding to this pressure in some judgments. Is that correct? Uh, probably at the moment it is not a conscious one. And in a way we can see uh, that um, the judges are still uh, giving good reasons for their, for their decision. Whether one agrees with that is another thing. And of course, once the judgment is out, um, um, healthy comments on, on the judgment is fair. Uh, but then somehow this, the judges are just humans. They can't avoid being influenced by the general climate uh, and whether you, you, as a result, you, you tend to give more weight to some of these concerns, etc. Uh, and, and if the interference continues and up to a point, there could be a concern about the, whether the judiciary should engage in direct confrontation uh, of, 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 uh, um, of the government or it could result in other things like to reform the judiciary, to uh, uh, restrict the procedure, like what happened in England after the Miller case. Uh, the government set up commissions. Now they are looking at whether uh, the power of, uh, or whether access to judicial review should be restricted. Whether uh, one should look at the appointment of judges and so on. Now we, we see something similar coming in a way, uh, and I think that is worrying. Uh, okay, uh, comment uh, by email from uh, Bowen. Backchat.rthk.hk is our email address. Bowen says, Dear Backchat, the Chief Justice's encounters with senior mainland judges over judicial independence, noted in Reuters' report, are really a metaphor for the uncertainty hanging over whether a fundamental tenet of our system of political governance, which has been accepted by the Chinese government and expressly incorporated into an international treaty and our city's own mini-constitution for decades, can be unilaterally revoked by strong-arm and or surreptitious tactics. If it is so revoked, other than the rule of law of 
of our city, the first casualty will appear to be the concept of Pacta Sunt Servanda in international law. But following Sun Tzu's precepts, the Chinese accept their victories not through the Cheng, i.e. normal force, but through but the Qi, i.e. extraordinary force. Blame cannot be laid at the door of the mainland authorities if the judges themselves, whether incumbent or newly appointed, succumb to pressure or persuasion themselves. Further, as inconceivables like the above become reality and interaction between the East and West continues, thinking about specific and fundamental issues will become blurred. In fact, this process has already begun. Internationally, there's been much inconclusive discussion about the recent performance of the WHO and whether China is to blame for the present pandemic to interrelated issues which are not extremely complicated, as one would have thought locally. One senior legal academic who hails from the West has surprisingly compared the MPSC's interpretation of the basic law to the judicial functions previously exercised by law lords in the UK. Such blurring of thinking, even among otherwise sophisticated people, can further enhance the clouding and subversion in Western societies of people's understanding of fundamental matters, such as the nature and role of the rule of law, the merits and demerits of democracy, federalism and so on. The insidiousness of COVID-19 will pale in comparison. Those thoughts from Bowen. Let's, thank you. Uh, let's bring in Carol, Carol Peterson now. Carol Peterson, former director of the Centre of Comparative and Public Law at the University of Hong Kong, now at uh, University of Manoa in Hawaii. Uh, Professor Peterson, Peterson uh, good morning or is it good, is good afternoon. Um, you, you've, been, um, you've been expressing concern about developments in Hong Kong for quite a while now. I mean, how do you see these latest reports and where do you assess the, the, the position of the judiciary now in Hong Kong? Uh, well, thank you. Uh, yes, I, I'm very worried. I'm not about public criticism of judicial rulings. I mean, frankly, that happens in lots of legal systems. It happens in the United States all the time. President Trump loves to criticize the Ninth Circuit when they rule against him. And nobody worries in the United States that the judges are going to be intimidated by that. I don't actually 100% agree with Johannes in the sense that I'm not sure that I see the judges becoming more timid but what worries me is that when these statements are issued, there is in the background a bit of a veiled threat, and that veiled threat is based on Article 158 and the power of the NPC Standing Committee to issue an interpretation of the basic law that would be binding on our courts. I think that's the biggest worry, not statements, not even intimidating conversations. It's the fact that unlike in the United States and other places where we have judicial independence, the party in Beijing, they really do have a weapon. And I think that's what we have to be the most concerned about. I agree with Johannes that the oath-taking case was a particularly frightening moment. And I do worry that maybe what is being planned is some kind of uh, interpretation of Article 158 that reigns in the power of the Hong Kong courts to interpret the basic law. Uh, and so that is my greatest worry. And I do think that although the basic law gives the NPC Standing Committee this power of interpretation, it is completely fair to argue that if that power is misused, at a certain point, it constitutes a violation of the Sino-British Joint Declaration because it will completely undermine the system that was actually promised to the Hong Kong people. Well, it was never mentioned. But I think that's when the international... I beg your pardon? No, I was just going to say, I mean, the power of interpretation by the Standing Committee was never mentioned in the Joint Declaration. I mean, that was something that crept in later. So some people already say that's that exactly it's a, a violation right. of the Joint Declaration, the fact that it's there at all. Well, my, my point is that what, the, what was promised in the Sino-British Joint Declaration was the continuation of the common law system with judicial independence. And you're absolutely right. There's nothing in the Sino-British Joint Declaration about the power of interpreting... Well, you're, you're, you're just indicating a kind of a contradiction between the Joint Declaration and the basic law. Well, in the end, the basic law is going to win any, any, <laughs> any battle like that, isn't it? The basic law is the, well, is the last I, word. Well, I would have to... I would have to disagree with you. It depends on where the battle is being fought. Yes, if you're if you're having the battle in a Hong Kong court, I agree. The Hong Kong judge will have to follow the interpretation. But if you're having a battle in an international forum, such as the UN Human Rights Committee, which will be reviewing Hong Kong's compliance with the ICCPR, 
not not too far in the future because the report has been filed now. If you are making an argument on the international forum, then the Sino-British Joint Declaration becomes very important because it is a question of whether Beijing lives up to its promises. And I think there is a point at which improper exercising of that power could amount to a violation of the treaty. You might remember that many years ago, when 1997 was you know, close upon us, there were academics who expressed the hope that the NPC Standing Committee would only rarely exercise their power of interpretation, that they would develop a constitutional convention of only exercising their power when they were asked to do so by the Hong Kong Court of Final Appeal. Clearly, that has not happened. Well, the and rare side has. Sorry, the rare side has, Professor Peterson. Five I mean, times. Is five it? times in twenty years, right? Once every four years. Uh, no, I, mean, I disagree with you. I disagree. It's not only the documents that are called interpretations. You have to look at all the documents that are also called decisions, and are listed as instruments in the Hong Kong e-legislation database. The Hong Kong government doesn't really know what to do with these documents. Uh, but Professor they Peterson, know that they are binding. Mm. And okay, Professor they Peterson. They are exercising their power of interpretation. That's what they're doing in those decisions. All right, Professor Peterson and, and Professor Chan. I guess the other place where um, that kind of battle that you you referred to might be relevant. Uh, between the uh, between the joint declaration and the basic law is in the academic field in the in the sort of ivory towers of the academic world. That m my point would be that you know on the ground in Hong Kong, um, people still trust the courts. Uh, uh, people still feel that the, you will get a fair trial uh, from the courts here, and the government cannot sweep away. The government cannot always assume by any means that it's going to get its way. Beijing can't assume it's going to get its way in Hong Kong. For the normal day-to-day -day functioning of our judicial system uh, in Hong Kong, people do have a lot of trust, and that's in the end, you know, where the important uh, where the importance of the judicial uh, judicial matters lies. Yeah, I... well, I I would agree with you on that. I do agree. But I also think that there is some reason to be concerned, and that's why I'm, I was certainly pleased to see Justice Ma's statement, but also pleased to see that there are people in Hong Kong who are reacting against some of the statements that have been made by Beijing. I do think it is one of those things where one has to respond to it and criticize it, whether it's in the Ivy Towers of the academic world or before the UN Human Rights Committee, because otherwise more interference will occur. But I completely agree with you. I think at this moment in time, a person who goes before a court in Hong Kong has every right to expect a fair trial and will get one. And Professor Chan? Yeah, um, yeah I, I agree that uh, it's too late now to talk about uh, the difference between joint declaration and the basic law. Uh, I think in, in U.S., when Trump criticized the judges, uh, it won't have any effect because people know there's not much can do against the judiciary. But here it is different, partly because of the power to interpret. So any official interpretation could lead people to fear what next then. So I, I think it is not a complete analogy, uh, and, and people do concern about judge, uh, 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 judges and courts being criticized uh, by the official organs. Um, the second point I think um, it's important to highlight, I, I, I do not uh, attribute necessarily any bad faith on China, but uh, the whole basic law rests on something very fundamental. Uh, the power is clearly in Beijing. The only thing that is different is how do you restrain the power. Time and again, we see debate on various things. Beijing says we have the power, we have the, uh, we have the uh, sovereign, and so on. Now, and, and I told some of my friends that if you take that line, that everything is sovereignty, then... Uh, that's the end of one country two system. One country two system rests on not whether you have the power, but whether you can restrain the exercise of power. And, and restraint of power is something pretty novel to China. Uh, and, um, and, and that is one thing, for example, the, uh, the, the power interpretation. Uh, there's every possibility you can restrain not to use the power. If we can have endless debates whether five interpretations is too many or too few in the last 20 years. Uh, but the question is, is it necessary to exercise that power? And what are the principles that could restrict you from exercising that power? So if things could be resolved in Hong Kong, then you have to exercise that power. So for the last 20 years, we never really developed any principle uh, or guidance on how to exercise that power and then work as a uh, constraint on the exercise of power. 
So in this respect, I think that communication is important. Uh, judicial independence doesn't mean that our judiciary or our legal profession cannot communicate with China. But communication, of course, is two-way. And over the last 20 years, I think one thing I feel strongly is um, that uh, we thought we understand their system. Uh, and they thought they understand our system. And then it turns out that uh, it's mutual misunderstanding. Uh, and there's not enough of these uh, frank discussions. Uh, and, uh, and discussion in, uh, uh, by accusation doesn't really take the matter any further. Uh, and I hope this is something uh, the organization in Hong Kong, particularly the official organization, can take a more uh, proactive step uh, to better understand and to start the dialogue in a way uh, with various stakeholders and not treat them as enemies. Uh, and and that, that goes to the, the very fundamental values uh, of restraint of power, which I think uh, there is still room uh, for coming to some kind of agreement. You, Professor Chen, very difficult to have a dialogue at the moment. You, you, you see, I mean, you, you know around Hong Kong, you, that uh, visits by even mainland scholars who previously were able to come there have been counselled, even before the coronavirus outbreak. The, uh, the whole atmosphere during the protests uh, made um, those who might have been willing to engage in a dialogue before m- much more reluctant or perhaps under pressure from the mainland unable to do so. Referring to the liaison office and Hong Kong Macau Affairs office attack on the uh, Democratic camp and Dennis Kwok in particular uh, right. over the stalling in the House committee, and they, they said he uh, he could be uh, he could be guilty of misconduct in public office. What did you make of that accusation? Right, I I, I think if you call that a, a concern, uh, it is almost equivalent to, to some of the triads asking for protection money and in the name of love, we concern you. <laughs> so uh, that that is a, a, a I think there are various ways to address the problems and indeed the, uh, and in, in a way the, the matter or the confrontation we see in Latchko has died down recently because of, of the pandemic. So it is uh, the worst occasion to bring this up at the moment and also pinpointing uh, at particular legislators uh, and even suggesting and people might see that that is a, 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 um, a, a demand on the Secretary for Justice to decide whether she has to at least to consider bringing uh, charges and so on. Um, that seems difficult to reconcile with Article 22 of the Basic Law. That if that's not interference, uh, what else is? Uh, and it is a very bad timing. It is a, a very bad move, and it is a, a, a violation of the Basic Law. But again, it comes back to is that the restraint uh, of, of Beijing uh, and the Beijing people's philosophy is uh, we want to control everything. If you do not put aside this kind of control mentality uh, and there's, there's, um, it is bound, this sort of thing is bound to happen again and again. 
Okay, well, we're going to break now for the news at uh, 9 o'clock. Continue the discussion in, in, in three minutes' time. We're talking about judicial independence, uh, the risks, threats to it uh, in Hong Kong. Uh, please uh, join by uh, giving us a call on 233-88266 or by emailing backchat at rthk.hk. We'll do our best to read out your, the bulk of your messages or, or you can comment on our Facebook page and everyone can read those messages at their leisure. That's uh, backchat on rthk radio 3. The weather, mainly fine, hot during the day. Temperatures up to 28 degrees today, 23 degrees now humidity is at 83 percent spread of the disease you're listening to the news on rthk Welcome back. This is Back Chat on a Friday morning with Danny Gittings and me, Hugh Chiverton. We're talking uh, now about uh, judicial independence. This is uh, inspired by that report from uh, Reuters quoting some senior judges as saying that uh, the judicial system was under assault uh, in Hong Kong. They're worried about pressure on uh, uh, Jeffrey Ma. Uh, we have with us uh, Carol Peterson, former director of the Centre for Comparative and Public Law at the University of Hong Kong, now professor in the School of Law at the University of Manoa in Hawaii. And uh, uh, Johannes Chan, the Chair Professor of Law, former Dean of the Faculty of Law at the University of Hong Kong. Once again, our telephone number 233-88266. Later, we're also going to be talking uh, with a network security uh, expert about the uh, the safety or otherwise of Zoom, the popular video conferencing tool that everybody's uh, using uh, one way or another. How secure uh, is it really? Uh, as ever, yeah, we're taking comments on, on a variety of things. Uh, let's see. Uh, I asked earlier about, there was a question about yesterday's discussion about the, whether the people who were talking with WHO spokespersons, I asked about the the source of that uh, the, the quoted figure for payment for people who speak for international organisations. Mike said he got the material from Google. So, and uh, John in Sai Kung says, "Hi, RTHK plugging positive views of Remdesivir during the 8:30 news question mark. Here's a link to a professional review of the so-called Remdesivir paper. It's obvious the data does not report all the data collected. Uh, surely some fact-checking is part of journalism." Asks John Sai Kung. John, my impression was I think the story was about the the stock exchange reaction. Uh, so it's the stock exchange perception. Oh, I don't think we were actually saying recommending uh, the drug ourselves. Polly says, dear back chat, uh, great discussion. Great guests and great discussion. I'd like to add that less than 30 years from now, Hong Kong will be just another city in China. One country, two systems will cease to exist and China will have a list of people they want from Hong Kong and these people will be locked up. That's Polly's take. Pretty sharp <laughs> take, take from Polly. Uh, on, <clears throat> on our Facebook page, uh, TC says, I agree that the rule of law, which includes judicial independence, is under threat. Thus, I don't know why do people like Alvin Young and all go to foreign countries and say one country, two systems is still defendable. Some recent highly political cases make me think part of the threat to the rule of law comes from the judges and their inconsistent application of the law. For example, in 2012 and 2014, the courts refused to hear a judicial review case in which the LegCo president may be improperly used his powers to end filibusters. The court stated that the judicial branch shouldn't get involved in the operations of the legislative branch. I think they did hear that case, but then they, they, did, they dismissed it. Um, and then TC going on to say, yet in 2017, the courts got, got itself involved in legislative branch operations during the so-called so oath-taking controversy. Thank you very much, TC. Um, uh, Professor Chan, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, you, you've actually been um, critical of ha how the courts handled the oath-taking um, um, case. And uh, you said that uh, they didn't show the same sort of um, uh, spirit of questioning or the limits of standing committee interpretations that they had in the past? Mm. Yes. Uh, I, I think if we compare the first 10 years with the second 10 years, uh, it seems that the judiciary are less innovative in uh, seeking ways to get around some of the MPCSC's uh, interpretation. We just have to accept the system. I think that the, the judges cannot ignore the MPCSC interpretation. Uh, but, for example, in the early days, they are trying to find ways to limit the impact of it, uh, whereas um, in the last, I think the last five years, uh, it seems that uh, we lost that kind of innovation, uh, and we are too ready to accept entirely uh, the um, interpretation. So one example, uh, in the first interpretation, uh, the NTC said, uh, said that uh, the intention of the basic law could be found uh, in a preparatory report, uh, 
report of the preparatory committee, which was published six years after the basic law was published. Uh, and the, the court has no difficulty later on in another case to say that well, that's different from our, our system. Although this is said by the MGCS in the interpretation, they don't really mean it, uh, and we can continue to adhere and ignore that kind of report. So, uh, whereas here, uh, almost the, the exact replica, when we tell you with the old case, uh, it is so obvious uh, what they talk about or their interpretation of the articles on oath has nothing to do with eligibility for running as a candidate. Uh, and then they extend the oath requirement to running a candidate. Uh, and the court's too ready to accept that, well, this is binding. Well, uh, one can think about uh, what they said uh, about an interpretation of an article, but when what they said has nothing to do with that article. Uh, is there more uh, an innovative way of getting out of it and so on? Uh, it seems that we lost that kind of stamina. We are too ready to accept that kind uh, of things. And in co-location, we have seen also a decision, which is not even an NPCSC interpretation, uh, could become effectively binding on Hong Kong. So I, I think that judiciary could be more bold, more innovative in dealing uh, with this kind of thing. You also mentioned earlier, you mentioned the Court of Appeal judgment in the anti-mask law, which, uh, am I right in thinking you were one of the counsel before, before that case? Um, right. Now, as a result, it's not quite appropriate for me to comment on the Court of Appeal uh, judgment. Uh, uh, but then the, the concern uh, is really that after the Court of First Instance um, made, delivered their t- the decision that we have seen, and, and quite rarely, uh, for the NPC, uh, the Legal Affairs Committee of NPCSC, uh, the National uh, State Council, the New China News Agency, they all criticize at the same time. And that is rare. Okay, well, let's go to Professor Peterson, who wasn't the counsel in that case. Um, <laughs> Professor Peterson, so you presumably have no difficulty comment on it. I, there was a widespread, um, there were a lot of reports that if the Court of Appeal hadn't ruled in favour of the government, of course, we must remember it didn't rule entirely in favour of the government. It, it still decided some aspects of the anti-mask law were invalid. But if the government had, if Court of Appeal hadn't ruled at least partially in favour of the government, then the Standing Committee would have just stepped in and issued an interpretation. And the Court of Appeal basically had a gun to its head. I agree. That is the worry. I mean, that's what makes Hong Kong different, is the fact that you have this this knife that the NPC Standing Committee is holding. And I thought one of the worst comments was were the comments that were made in November 2019 uh, when there were officials in Beijing who questioned even whether the courts in Hong Kong had the right to rule on the constitutionality of legislation. So I agree with you. I think it is possible that these kinds of statements combined with the power that's in Article 158 um, may be making the judges reluctant to rule completely against the government. Um, when Johanna says they used to be more creative or more innovative, it's possible that they're being innovative now, but in a different direction. In other words, it's possible that the judges are genuinely worried about a sweeping interpretation that could come. And therefore, they may be looking for a way to do justice, but without offending Beijing too much. And in some ways, I think they've been doing this all along. If you go all the way back to the slide desecration case, um, when the Court of Appeal had actually said that the flight desecration laws were unconstitutional, and the Court of Final Appeal came back with a decision that, you know, basically said they're fairly constitutional. And, and I think that even then, Probably the Court of Final Appeal was concerned that there might be a point at which Beijing would step in and truly overrule them and maybe reinterpret Article 39 or Article 158. So I, I think it is a great concern, but to me it's, it's more about the possible misuse of Article 158 by the NPC Standing Committee than about the odd statement here or there or even some of the comments that were quoted in the, in the article by Reuters, I think it's that power under 158. And as Johanna said, the fact that there's, there really has been no effort by Beijing to develop any sort of principled guidance as to when they might issue an interpretation. Instead, it seems to be willy-nilly, whether it's under this label of interpretation or decision, uh, to control Hong Kong when they deem it necessary to control Hong Kong. And I think that is the greatest threat. 
What, what about the issue of, of uh, choosing the judges? That was also touched on, I think, in the, in, in the Reuters article. Uh, uh, you know, there is a me- mechanism that LegCo and, and the chief executive have a role to play, uh, uh, you know, at least according to the, to, to, to the system, um, although sort of by tradition it, they, they, they don't. Um, wh- what do you think about that? Do you think that that might be, there might be pressure, that real pressure, and there might be uh, Beijing choosing judges in the near future? I think the Judicial Officers Recommendation Commission is is a wonderful institution, and long may it last. I mean, we have very political appointments in the United States. Well, I was just going to say, I mean, there are are different ways to do it, don't it? It may not be the end of the world if you do have political appointments to to the judges. I mean, the biggest democracy in the world seems to get by, arguably, with uh, with that system. Well, well, I would like to disagree. First of all, I think it is really a violation of the rule of law. In the United States, we actually have judges elected in some states, mm. which is horrible, and overt political considerations going on in the appointment of federal judges. And we have, in many cases in, in this administration, have judges who have been deemed unappointable, unqualified by the American Bar Association. So uh, you really do not want to go down that route. But the other point that you made, yes, the world's largest democracy, although I think India would probably disagree, but, oh, sorry, yeah. but anyway, we are a democracy at least, and there is some sort of way to respond by voting out Donald Trump, hopefully. In, if you are in a situation where Beijing is appointing your judges, there is absolutely no recourse, because it is a one-party state. So I think the most important thing that Hong Kong can do to protect its judicial independence is to protect that appointment mechanism and to ensure that it does not become more politicized than it might already be. I mean, I realize occasionally there are comments about the appointment to that commission becoming more political, but I think by and large it's still a very well well-respected mechanism. Professor Chan, you favorably compared the Hong Kong appointment system with that in the U.S. in the past. Right. Uh, there, there are a lot of differences, uh, and partly there's this cultural as well. Uh, and I am quite prepared to take uh, what Jeffrey said about the appointment system. So far, there's no interference, and I think the Judicial Officers Recommendations Commission is a good uh, um, procedural safeguard of the uh, appointment and the integrity of that process, although we may do some bit of fine-tuning. At the moment, it is uh, a nine-person commission uh, and with a majority coming from the legal profession. Uh, There are three lay persons there who are appointed by the chief executive, Uh, and that is something which I have always puzzled. How do you appoint lay persons uh, and uh, what are the criteria and so on? Uh, and of course, some kind of public participation in the selection of judges uh, is a good thing, uh, but the procedures allow free persons uh, to veto. They cannot uh, ensure an appointment, but they can veto an appointment. Uh, so in future, I think we might want to uh, be more careful uh, and more vigilant in looking at how these lay persons are appointed, what are the criteria for appointing them to the commission. Uh, and the other development, which um, is a bit concerning, which is a very different between Hong Kong and U.S. system, is uh, U.S. Supreme Court judges will have to go through the Senate. Uh, they could be even cross-examined in the Senate and so on. That has never been the British system. Uh, we we take the appointment process out entirely of the political process. Uh, but at the first part, uh, chief judges and court of final appeal judges, they have to go through to get endorsement of the LegCo, and there were some attempts in the past uh, that... Uh, try to politicize the um, appointment, that, that part of the process, uh, I would have expected that part of the process is more a, a formality rather than developed into the full U.S. style, uh, and then we cross-examine every single move of the judges in the party's attitude on, on a whole range of things. I don't think it is healthy, uh, and it, it might tend to politicize the judiciary. Mm. Okay. Uh, Comment on a Facebook page, this is from Gerhardt. There's a long message, so I'll just read some, some parts of it. Uh, but you, of course, read, read, read it at your leisure. Back to that on RTHK Radio 3. Gerhardt says, The difference between Hong Kong law and Chinese law is Hong Kong is run through rule of law, based on the principle of common law rather than statute law, which China uses to enforce the principle of rule by law. So when you go to court in China, there's a less than 1% chance that you will win against the prosecution. You have to prove your innocence. China also has a one-party system, which means that grievances by the people cannot 
not be adequately dealt with because most grievances are a form of complaint which the CCP will not tolerate. How then are you supposed to deal with inadequacies by praising the Communist Party? It doesn't work very well unless you have people who are compassionate and care and listen. Not much of that going on in Hong Kong by a current government. So doubtful much care is going on uh, in the mainland. Uh, perhaps if LegCo were truly representative of the people to enact laws where fairness could prevail, things might go a bit smoother all round. One thing is for sure, Hong Kong should have an independent judiciary that is independent of the system in China because the systems are not compatible in either context or practice. That comes uh, from Gerhardt. Thanks very much indeed for that. Uh, Professor Chan, finally, we will have a new Chief Justice next year, and every time you have a new Chief Justice, it leads to at least uh, some changes of style. The new Chief Justice will also be someone um, who's delivered some of the judgments in lower courts that um, we've been discussing this morning and perhaps um, there's been some criticism of. I mean, how much change should we expect under a new Chief Justice? Um, I, I don't expect a lot of changes, uh, and he is... Um been with the judiciary, he has been with the judiciary for quite some time, and he has been chief judge of the High Court before, uh, and a lot of uh, uh, administrations. And I would, ex uh, I, I don't expect the judiciary is such a, a, a mature institution that it would not be changed simply by the change of head. Uh, and also, even in the court, uh, he will be one of our five judges, and so on. And I, I have every confidence that he will basically continue with what has uh, been done before by the former Chief Justice. But you mentioned earlier that maybe some other um, pri lawyers in private practice may be more reluctant to become judges now. Yes, I think that that is a, 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 an important public concern and public perception that probably the judiciary will have to be more proactive uh, in trying to dispel that kind of uh, misconception or at least that kind of worry. I don't think you can brush it aside as if it doesn't exist. Uh, and uh, the Reuters report, in a way, confirmed that, uh, like it or not, that kind of perception is there, uh, and the judiciary can only try their best uh, to dispel that kind of thing uh, and by what they did, by what they said, by what, how they judged, and so on. And at the same time, uh, it could be healthy that they, they maintain some kind of, of, of communications uh, as part of the administrative role of the, of, of the, uh, um, uh, of the court. Okay, well, thank you very much indeed for, for joining us, uh, Professor Johannes Chan there. Oh, yeah, nice message from uh, Matthew, uh, who says, Great programme today on an important topic. Genuinely expert guests with the confidence to speak the truth. In contrast to the two WHO-related doctors we heard from yesterday. Bravo in particular to Professor Chan for having the confidence to speak up on such a delicate and sensitive subject. Uh, thanks for that, Matthew. Thank you very much indeed. To uh, Professor Chan, Johannes Chan, Chair Professor of Law at the University of Hong Kong, and Carol Peterson. Professor in the School of Law at the University of Manoa, uh, Tawai. Thank you both very much indeed for uh, joining us. Um, just before we go on some uh, other comment uh, from listeners, uh, Bernadette says, please, I need to know why I'm receiving messages from a government department in Chinese and has an attachment of a, a text message. Isn't it time-saving when you have notices sent to people in Chinese and English? And a long message from, from Magnus, which I shall uh, attempt to uh, edit without misrepresenting. Uh, apologies in advance as ever uh, Magnus, Magnus says on the media coverage of coronavirus I have some concerns about the Hong Kong media coverage of coronavirus here in Hong Kong hope you might be able to shed some light two main areas of concern first the public health situation and our government's response in order to manage it second the economic situation both areas I feel not enough questions are being asked of the authorities with regard to the public health situation, we're in a great position, in fact, the envy of almost any other country that one could care to mention. At the time of writing, Hong Kong has 550 active cases, of which 10 are considered to be in a critical condition. Both our absolute position and its direction of travel are excellent. Through the fantastic response of the general public all the way back in January and much sacrifice from many in the months since, we have in Hong Kong uh, never had a dire public health situation and certainly have nothing of the sort now. Is this being recognised by the government, by the community at large, by the media. Uh, we've achieved a wonderful outcome. That's fantastic. And everyone ought to be very and thankful to their fellow Hong Kongers. But what comes next? Where is the plan for moving back to a more normal work-life situation? Uh, we don't have a public health crisis, so why are we not planning to release some of the current restrictions? Why is seemingly nobody asking about the lack of such plans? The economic situation is inextricably linked to that of public health. An economic crisis is rapidly unfolding. Late to the party, as always, in recent weeks, 
weeks, the government finally recognised that after nine months of mayhem via civil unrest and then coronavirus, business individuals could use some assistance. Whilst welcoming in a better late than never sense, the economic support package is woefully, woefully misdirected. How can it possibly be fair or make sense to spray cash at entirely unaffected or even prosperous prospering businesses in the way proposed. Truly enormous amounts of public money are being spent here, often in ways entirely inconsistent with employment support. It's scandalous and the authorities need to be held to account. I urge the media to be much more aggressive in demanding answers from the Hong Kong government. Those thoughts uh, from Magnus. Thank you very much indeed for that. Finally today, uh, uh, we wanted to talk a little bit about um, Zoom. Um, this is the uh, internet video conferencing platform that's uh, uh, being used uh, all over the world. It's in usage uh, boom. Uh, but at the same time, there are very real concerns about civacy, uh, safety and privacy uh, issues, so much so that the Indian government has said that they're definitely not going to use it. Uh, and there were a number of uh, reports of uh, Zoom accounts uh, being for sale uh, in the dark web. Michael Gaisley joins us now, Managing Director of Network Box, to talk about a little bit about the um, security issues. Uh, Mr Gaisley, good morning to you. Good morning. Thank you much indeed for, for joining us. How safe is Zoom? There's a lot to unpack because there are general issues which would impact sort of all video conferencing, regardless of which product or service. Then there are bugs and vulnerabilities that are specifically in Zoom. Then there are sort of policies and features with different perspectives, you know, depending on whether you're a user or management, you know, that that's paying if you're using a paid version of Zoom. And then there are user actions where there's deficient technical knowledge and there's user actions where there's deliberate sabotage or pranking so there's there's an awful lot to unpack uh, within that one topic well the point is about zoom is they deliberately made it easy to use and it it, it, it certainly serves that purpose i mean we're all aware of people who are who are hopeless with technology and have no problem using zoom uh, they made it e easy to to use by skipping on the security features didn't they uh, I think all of us probably in, you know, in, in business have been to the start of, of various meetings where the first 10, 20 minutes is everyone trying to get the system to work. And, and Zoom managed to bypass that where people just sort of clicked and it worked immediately. And I think with humans, if they're given the choice between something that works smoothly and something that's secure, they choose the convenience every time, you know, which is why Zoom went from the end of last year about sort of 10 million users a day um, to, you know, 20 times that. So, so yeah, there, there are plenty of more secure alternatives out there, but we all choose Zoom because it's easier to use, and we essentially, uh, we take the risk of the security. I, there are ways you can reduce the security risk, aren't there, and passwords and um, well, yeah, use the I mean, app instead. A lot of the issues with Zoom are where people are not using the security features that are actually there. You know, they're setting up meetings without any password at all, they have a feature which is a waiting room so that you can kind of vet the people that are coming into your meeting. A lot of people don't bother to use that. And then they don't lock the meeting after the meeting started so somebody else can come in. And then there's things where they, uh, even government ministers, you know, tweeting out their meeting and the, the, the sort of meeting ideas there and so on. So there's lots of things that the users can do. Uh, most of them not that difficult, you know, to improve the security there have been some serious vulnerabilities in both the Mac and the Windows versions of, of Zoom. But to be fair to Zoom, they've actually you know, fixed them pretty quickly uh, when, when they've been told of the, the problems. So if we say, if you use Zoom, uh, if you use Zoom with a password, and maybe uh, on, uh, on an uh, a Apple version, on, uh, on an iPhone or an iPad or something like that, then you shouldn't really need to worry too much about security issues. I mean, if, if you're holding some kind of defense meeting, you know, the, and you're part of, the, of some government, then, yeah, probably not. Uh, but if you're, you know, a normal person, a normal business, you've got the updated version of Zoom where the vulnerabilities or the, the worst vulnerabilities that we've all been talking about for the last week or two, that they've all been fixed. Um, I think, yes, it, it's not, you know, it's not a, as dangerous as people are making out, I don't think. What, what, what's at risk? What, what could you lose? Um, well, uh, Zoom is not end-to-end -end encrypted. So you've got a situation where Zoom themselves, you know, could, in theory, uh, grab your data. But, you 
know, if, if, if it's if it's sort of a quote unquote normal kind of meeting, I, I I just don't see that it's a massive risk. And also, you know exactly who's responsible um, if if you you know if you do have an issue. And we haven't had many cases. I mean, in Singapore, they 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 shut it down for the schools, didn't they? After sort of pornography was turning up in uh, online classes and things like that. But, but they've restarted now. They're they allowing Zoom again. But anyway, the point I was going to say is, I mean, in Hong Kong, I mean, it must be 90% of Hong Kong schools are using Zoom now. And we all, where I work, we, I'm using it for meetings every day. We don't seem to have had these kind of cases in Hong Kong. Well, the, you know, I think in the school case, if you examine it a bit more, it's actually almost funny because uh, a lot of the cases where people are doing Zoom bombing, as, it, as it's called, the you know, some students have given out the the details of that class on purpose you know they've gone to blog sites or, or, or you know to various online sites and they've given out the details inviting trolls to come in and, and, and disrupt you know just for fun oh no that raises an important issue i mean what can you you put in place these security measures but um, uh, you have to provide the passwords to the people who are supposed to come into the um in into the into the zoom meeting what, what can you do if they if the the the, the the proper recipients themselves misuse that as you said well, zoom Oh, I see. You come back to the waiting room. um, The people that join the meeting go into this sort of waiting room first, and then the the person hosting the meeting can actually allow those people in one at a time after vetting that they really are who they're supposed to be. And then once everyone that's supposed to be there is there, you can lock the meeting, and then, you know, these trolls can't come in at all. So you're saying passwords by themselves are not enough. You should use them. Well, I mean, you know, once again, in a business meeting, uh, it seems less likely that one of the members would, you know, that's coming in would, would cr- create a deliberate problem. Um, but, you know, I can imagine for schools, a lot of people think it would be a laugh, you know, from a student point of view, they'd think it was funny inviting a troll in and, and, and the troll comes in and disrupts the class, you know, because they're not that keen on studying physics or whatever. So uh, I think there are different circumstances. But if the teacher's using the waiting room properly, then it's pretty secure. And the worst vulnerabilities where, for example, on a Mac, um, you, you could have somebody come in and, and control the webcam and microphone and, and things like that with, without users' knowledge. Uh, on the Microsoft platform, uh, there was a identity impersonation where credentials could be stolen and so on. But, you know, I really have to be fair to Zoom. They, when, when they've found out about these things, they've fixed them a lot quicker than people who sell cybersecurity products, which is the field I'm in. I've been, you know, often flabbergasted where you, you see various firms take six months to fix something. I mean, Zoom's been doing it in a matter of days. Okay. Well, Michael Gaisley, many thanks for joining us, Managing Director Network Box. Thank you very much indeed for that. An interesting email uh, to finish off from Andrew F., who says, uh, always refreshing, this is referring to a discussion yesterday, always refreshing to hear the measured, thoughtful input of Next Media's pound shop Steve Bannon on Backchat, Mark Simon. While he railed against the, quote, expert class, your other two guests showed the value of being both experts in their fields and having class. When Mark ranted that Dr Mackay was, quote, liar when she talked about the annual budget of the WHO being so modest it was comparable to a single US hospital, she calmly continued to be both factual and respectful. She stated that the budget of a single typical US medical facility was several billion US dollars, making it comparable to the WHO's of around four billion. I googled the annual operating budget for the Vermont University University Medical Center, simply because I've been to it and it was the first one I could think of off the top of my head. And even its budget for 2020 is 1.35 billion US dollars. I just uh, confirmed that. Uh, the anti-intellectualism, says Andrew F., that is the hallmark of the Trump presidency, Mr. Simon so much admires, was very much in evidence during most of his commentary as he spoke from the gut and so clearly was not troubled by mundane things such as facts. That comes from uh, Andrew F. Thank you very much indeed for that. Danny, many thanks to uh, you and uh, to our producer and uh, researcher, to Michelle and to Angie and to Andy. Thank you very much indeed for joining us today. Have a good weekend. It's going to be uh, mainly fine today and again hot. Temperatures up to 28 degrees. Mainly fine the next couple of days and again hot, humid with fog early next week. 24 degrees now and the humidity is at 79%. To prevent the spread of COVID-19, try flexible working hours and staggered meal breaks. Wear a mask on public transport. Avoid crowded lifts. Try not to hold large meetings and reduce face-to-face contact with colleagues. Avoid meal gatherings. Stay away from crowds after work. 
Wash hands frequently and keep the workplace clean. If you feel unwell, stay away from work and see your doctor. Visit coronavirus.gov.hk for details. 9.32, the news now with Samantha Butler. An economist says China's rebound from the coronavirus pandemic will be much smoother than other parts of the world, given that it's a planned economy. Ben Emmons from Medley Global Advisors in Los Angeles told RTHK he expected China's GDP would be down 10 to 15 percent in the first quarter, the first time it will report a contraction. The Chief Secretary Matthew Jung has appealed to LegCo's Finance Committee to endorse the government's $137 billion anti-epidemic relief package as soon as possible. Before the meeting, he said more than a million people stand to benefit from the measures to help businesses stay afloat and keep workers employed. And President Trump has set out his plans for lifting coronavirus restrictions across America. At a White House news conference, he said governors would be allowed to choose how to meet their state's individual needs. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. Thanks, Sam. Yeah.